Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The FT Coming soon to your ISA, shares from a market that has underperformed for 10 years. Investing for the very long term, what will the world look like in 2050? And the debate about gold, should private investors own it at all? I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues Joe Cumbo. Hello. Norma Cohen. Hello. Lucy Warwick-Ching. Hello. And our special studio guest, Nicholas Stafford, co-manager of the Fidelity Global Demographics Fund. Hello. The Treasury announced this week that shares traded on all recognised investment exchanges in Europe will henceforth be allowed in individual savings accounts. For the purposes of UK investors, this effectively means that shares traded on the Alternative Investment Market, or AIM, will now be permitted, whereas previously most of them were ineligible for ISAs. AIM was set up in 1995 to replace the unlisted securities market and provide a home to smaller growth-oriented companies. At its peak in 2007, close to 1,700 companies were traded on it, taking advantage of its less stringent listing requirements. There have been some stunning success stories. AIM's biggest company, online fashion retailer ASOS, would, for instance, be big enough for the FTSE 100 if it were on the main market. But overall, AIM shares have been a disappointment. Over 600 companies have left the market over the past five years or so. And the AIM All Share Index has lost investors 7% over the past decade, even with dividends reinvested. By contrast, the FTSE Small Cap Index, which tracks smaller shares on the main market, has more than doubled in that time. So why is the government so keen on AIM all of a sudden? Joe Cumbo has been investigating. Joe, the Treasury opposed allowing AIM shares in ISAs for over a decade. What have they said about why they've changed their minds now? Well, you're right, Jonathan. For many years, successive governments have resisted calls to allow AIM shares into ISAs. And the chief reason has been that these shares are considered too high risk for the ISA brand. ISAs are seen as a mainstream wrapper for mainstream retail investors. So this is a change of heart from the government. But the the big factor influencing is this, is that the government wants to do all it can to support small businesses to grow and to um, get employment kick-started again. So what we've seen so far is that the efforts and the initiatives they've made, such as funding for lending scheme, just aren't getting the credit through to small businesses. So what we're seeing now with the ISA rules being changed and relaxed to allow AIM shares is a new attempt to widen the funding pool for small businesses. 
Okay, and how soon will this decision take effect? Are we going to have to wait, for instance, until the start of the next tax no, year? No, it could be a matter of weeks rather than months or even next year because all the government needs to do is to table the regulations which they propose to do before they go on summer holiday. Okay. Now, the whole point of ISAs is that um, investments within them can can grow free of capital gains tax and the the dividends paid don't attract any further income tax. But AIM shares already have some other tax advantages too. What are are those? Yes, certain qualifying AIM stocks benefit from something called business property relief, providing a debt tax or IHT exemption once they've been held for two years. Now, this relief is there to encourage entrepreneurs to to put lots of money into small businesses. So that relief will transfer into the ISA. So effectively, what we're going to see is the the first IHT-free ISA. Okay. And what's been the industry reaction? They're very pleased with this decision and the change of heart by the government because they have been campaigning for many years for AIM shares to be included on a more widespread basis into ISAs. They've been pointing out the inconsistencies because AIM shares can be included in ISA wrappers at the moment, but not very few of them can, only those which are dual listed um, or you can get some exposure through some um, funds, but it's not widespread exposure. So they're pleased that that inconsistency has been uh, ironed out and that investors who do want to get into the AIM shares, into the AIM market, will have a broader choice. And what about the more cautious voices? Presumably not everyone's in favour well, of this. Well, that risk hasn't disappeared overnight, as you pointed out, that the, the, the AIM market hasn't done very well. But um, AIM shares can be dizzying. They can, can do quite well and quite quickly, and they're very volatile. And that's why they've been seen as the preserve of more experienced investors um, in the past. And that's that guidance certainly hasn't changed. As you pointed out, AIM stocks um, aren't so stringent when they're listed on the exchange. So that's another little concern that investors need to think about. And they can be less liquid as well too as um, investing in a bigger stock exchange. So the risks of investing in these shares can be multiplied uh, when investing in small companies. So for these reasons, investing in AIM shares, again, advisors are saying is really only suitable for wealthy and more experienced individuals who are prepared to accept the higher risks. Okay, thank you very much, Joe. You can read more about the decision to allow AIM shares in ISAs and the reaction to it in this weekend's FT Money. FT Money is available on both Saturday and Sunday as part of FT Weekend. You can also read via the FT's tablet apps on Kindle and online at ft.com forward slash money. If you want to leave comments, you can do so online at the foot of articles or email us. The address is money at ft.com. Still to come on the show... Is gold a useful portfolio diversifier, an inflation hedge, or just a volatile distraction? First, though, we're always being told that investing is a long-term business. In this context, long-term usually means around five years. But what about the very long-term? What will the world look like in 2030 or even 2050? To get an idea, we have to look towards the science of demography, or predicting how the world's population is going to change. We already have an idea of how things are shaping up in the developed world. Because life expectancy has improved so much, we're going to have lots more older people who tend to invest and consume in different ways to younger people. But what about the rest of the world? Will countries that have on average very young populations stay that way? 
what will be the impacts of growing urbanisation in a developing world. I'm joined now by Norma Cohen, who writes about demography for the Financial Times, and by Nicola Stafford, who co-manages the Fidelity Global Demographics Fund, one of several offshore specialist funds available to more sophisticated UK investors. Norma, I guess the first point we should make here is that demography is, by its nature, very long-term. We're not trend-following here, are we? Not at all. And in fact, we've been able to spot our growing population of elderly uh, for several decades. Uh, But with me today is Nicola Stafford, who is going to uh, help us to understand what the other population trends are. Nicola, what are the other population trends besides uh, a growing army of elderly people? What else is there that's happening on the ground? When we think about demographic trends, I think there's three facts that that anyone can agree on are happening for sure over the coming decades. The first is that globally, the population is getting meaningfully bigger. So we forecast the population is going to grow from about 7 billion people today to 9 billion by 2050. So that's 70 million people entering the planet every year. The second is, you know, the population is getting wealthier. So if you look at the definition of consuming class, that is going to nearly double over the next 15 years from 2.4 billion to 4.2 by 2025. And the third point which you've mentioned is aging. Um, certainly when we look at the global landscape over the next coming decades, the, the world is getting older. So the number of 65s globally will treble by the middle of the century, while the working population will only increase by a third. So I think those are the three facts that we can all agree on are, are happening over the coming years. Um, When we think about the investment implications of this, I think there's five themes to focus on. The first is the rising demand for resources. So more people on the ground, more mouths to feed and care for. This will put pressure on several areas of the market, whether it's energy, um, basic food, commodities. The second is the um, emergence of a new middle class. So as the consuming class grows, you're going to see people trade into and trade up within several categories um, that are discretionary in nature, whether it's food, healthcare, um, retail, luxury goods. A variety of different industries will benefit from people starting to enter the consuming class. The third important theme I think is worth focusing on is changes in consumption behavior and lifestyle. So as the young generation matures, they're going to take with them into the future both good and bad habits. Um, and when you think about what those could be, you know, on the good side, it perhaps is is internet. This didn't exist for most most of us ten years ago, and the entire young generation is on their mobile phones. They're using the internet, and as they start to have jobs, start to make money, and start to consume, you'll see a dramatic shift in how people consume, driven more towards um, the technology areas of the market, which are underrepresented today. As that young generation matures, there are also negative consequences because they'll take with them to the future the negative habits, whether it's bad dietary habits, um, higher incidence of obesity, which will influence um, several areas of the market in healthcare. Um, as we have uh, an aging population, um, as well as one with higher uh, incidence of obesity, so I think that's that's an interesting area to focus on. The fourth we've talked about, which is aging. Um, certainly, the world is getting older. And this is going to have dramatic impact to a variety of industries, but I think the most important is healthcare. And the last point is dependency ratios. And this is to to your comment before. Dependency ratios will vary based on the country and the 
constituency of the population. So in areas where dependency ratios are adverse, so in the developed world where we have an aging population, we're going to see increased pressure on systems to find cost-effective solutions to take care of their population. In economies where the dependency ratio is favorable, we as investors can focus more on the growth areas, the consuming areas, um, as the young population should be able to support the economy. Nicola, these are very broad categories. Can you give us an example, perhaps, of how an investor might take uh, advantage of, say, one of the trends that you've singled out? What about this um, uh, a trend in consumption habits, uh, the change in the way people consume? How might an investor go about taking advantage of, a, of that sort of a trend? It's interesting. If you look at a very what we think is a basic commodity but was actually a luxury for a lot of people, which is food, packaged food, in the emerging markets, the amount of money spent on food is one-tenth that of the developed world. So not only as the population grows, but as the consuming power increases over time, that number should proliferate. We should see the gap close between developed and emerging spend on food, and we should also see the total volume of consumers increase. If we think about this at a granular level, we can we can identify specific industries that should benefit. And one interesting one is alcohol. People tend to trade into beer as an entry category for alcohol. And if you look at the cost of beer in Africa today, it's equivalent to three hours of work for an individual to afford a beer. You compare that to the global average, it's 20 minutes. So as the consuming class increases, we should see the affordability of beer Im- improve and we should see the number of consumers trade into it and overall consumption per per person increase over time. So that's just an example. And there's several companies which are directly benefiting from this trend, which we can discuss. But that's an area that I think is quite interesting. That is going to be my stat for the day. 20 minutes work equals a pint. Thank you very much uh, to Nicholas Stafford, co-manager of the Fidelity Global Demographics Trends Fund, and to Norma Cohen. Our cover feature in this weekend's FT Money looks at these themes in a lot more detail and we have a great map showing how some parts of the world will age over the next few decades and there are some surprises in there. We've detailed of some of the funds that invest in these themes and we list some of the shares that the managers of these funds have picked out. We've also got James King, the noted FT commentator on China, about the huge movement of people likely within that country over the next few years. On to our final item for today gold. For much of the past decade, gold has looked like a one-way bet. Ever since the then-Chancellor Gordon Brown sold off a big chunk of the Bank of England's gold reserves for less than $300 an ounce at the end of the 1990s, the price has marched steadily upwards, reaching a peak of over $1,900 per ounce in 2011. During that time, gold has become much easier to own, thanks to the launch of things like exchange-traded commodities and fractional ownership services. And as investors have become much more worried about the security of paper money and the stability of the world financial system, so they have craved tangible assets like gold. But since 2011, the trend has changed. Gold traded in a narrow range for much of 2012, and this year has been a disaster. There was a big tumble in the price in April, and there was another one a week or so ago. This volatility has reignited the debate about whether gold is a suitable asset for private investors to own. Lucy Warwick-Ching has been listening to the debate, for and against. Lucy, let's start with the price action. What has prompted the most recent tumble in the gold price? 
So since the beginning of the year, gold has fallen by 25%, you know, a really big fall. And it's now hovering us around $1,200 per troy ounce. But um, some of the most recent drop has really been triggered by comments from the US Federal Reserve talking about their kind of economic planning. So they've talked about reducing quantitative easing. So that's made lots of people rethink their own kind of strategies. And they're thinking, you know, lots of people held gold because... Um, they wanted a kind of physical store of value. Um, but if quantitative um, easing is going to be reduced, then, yeah, people are rethinking that. And a stronger dollar, which is bad for gold, and a higher US bond yield means, I suppose, that the opportunity cost of holding gold, an asset that doesn't generate any income, is higher. So why would investors own it at all? What is the point of owning gold? So traditionally, people have really liked to have something that they can kind of hold in their hand. So, you know, as I say, I said a physical store of value. And lots of people have seen it as, you know, perhaps a diversifier for their portfolio because its returns are very different to things like equities or uh, bond yields. Um, so, you know, whereas perhaps gold price might rise at times when uh, equities might be falling. So they they quite like to have it as, you know, diversifier and for the physical value. And just um, some people just, they're real, real uh, fans of gold, as I've kind of found out this week from doing this this piece. People just absolutely, some people just absolutely love it and they won't hear a bad word against it. If you buy the argument that gold is a, a useful insurance policy against uh, big falls in other markets or against meltdown in the financial system, what sort of proportion of your overall portfolio do you think it should uh, constitute? Well, I think in, unless you're absolutely obsessed with gold, I think most people would agree that you probably only really want to hold about between 5 and 10% of your portfolio in gold. Um, as you mentioned a moment ago, gold divides opinion like almost no other assets. There are there are some people who, as you say, will not hear a bad word said against it and would probably still own it if it fell 90%. What have the gold sceptics been saying to you? I think what, what people say is, um, you know, it doesn't produce any income, um, doesn't have any interest, um, there's no dividends, it just sits there and you're very reliant on things like um, demand and supply and basically how much people will pay for it. So um, as you mentioned, the opportunity cost, that, that is kind of the biggest risk of holding gold because you may, you may have gold and actually your money could be in something else that is going to be producing much higher returns for you. So you really got to weigh up why you're holding it if it's for safety or because you just want to have it as a diversifier then that's fair enough but if you are kind of relying on the returns that you may get from gold then you have to reassess it and obviously now as the price is coming down then you've got to really think about why you're holding it and if you do decide to own a bit of gold um, say five or ten percent very briefly uh, what are the different ways you can do it um, well, the main ways are having physical gold so you can buy gold bullion bars or um, coins and you can do that through traditional dealers or now there's actually quite a lot of online um, services that you can do it through. Or there's things like the exchange traded commodities, which are kind of bought and sold like shares, but they track the gold price. Um, and then obviously there are gold funds. They tend to invest in gold mining firms. So you need to be a bit careful with that because then that may not just track the gold price. It's, it's something slightly different. And actually, as we've seen over the past few months, uh, some gold funds have come down much further than uh, the gold price itself. So, But then if you do want to go into a fund, and actually it does, it can diversify your money, so it gives you a little bit of security. Um, Hargreaves Lansdowne is recommending the um, BlackRock Golden General Fund, and uh, they also like the Troy Trojan Fund. 
Okay, thank you very much, Lucy. You can read lots more about the arguments for and against gold, plus the outlook for the price, in this weekend's FT Money. Lucy has already written a blog post, which you can read on our blog site, ft.com slash moneymatters. Other items in this week's FT Money include a guide to choosing workplace pension funds, recent launches of specialist investment companies, and the latest developments in the mortgage markets. We'd love to hear your views too. You can add comments at the foot of articles on our website or you can email us directly. The address once again is money at ft.com. Don't forget you can read about money online throughout the week at ft.com forward slash money where you'll also find more blog posts and useful tools like our pension calculator and the latest annuity rates. But until next week, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Joe, Norma, Lucy and our special guest Nicola Stafford at Fidelity. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.